Man, would you turn with me this morning to Acts chapter 3 in your Bible? Acts chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 and read down through verse 16. This is only reading a portion of the story. The story actually continues into the next chapter, but we'll consider the first portion of this chapter today. Acts chapter 3. The scripture says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have. I give to you, in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. But put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts. Focus of this and the rest of this chapter, and even into chapter 4, is the opportunity here for Peter and John to be witnesses to Jesus. They are witnessing the power of Jesus' name. And here, as in other places in the book of Acts, God, through Christ and his name, is accomplishing an amazing miracle. Some would call a wonder, others call a sign. It's certainly a supernatural act of God. And it's an opportunity that unfolds then for the preaching of the gospel. As we look through chapter two, especially the end of the chapter, Luke briefly mentioned that the apostles were doing or they were performing many wonders and signs. If you look at verse 43, 
of Acts chapter 2, Luke is describing the response to these miracles. Verse 43 of chapter 2, it says, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Well, what exactly was he talking about? What kinds of things were taking place? Well, chapter 3 is an example of the kind of thing, certainly Every miracle is a notable thing. This one happened to turn into a very public event. And this is the kind of thing. This is the kind of wonder. This is the kind of sign that was taking place by the hands of the apostles. And as the Lord, of course, is doing this through them, they then have the opportunity to preach. And that's what we'll see. We see somewhat in this chapter and also in the next that Peter has the opportunity now to preach Christ publicly and even before the Sanhedrin uh, because of this thing that God did to draw attention uh, to them. This is the first, arguably, of many miracles recorded in the book of Acts. I say arguably because we could talk about what he said in chapter 2, verse 43. You could also see, as Pentecost unfolded, that there were miracles taking place there. So I suppose it depends on how you define a miracle. But in terms of a miracle like this, a healing miracle, This is one of, by one count, 14 individual miracles that take place in the book that Luke gives attention to the details. There are summary statements like we saw in chapter 2. If you take a look over at chapter 5 for just a moment, Luke is going to summarize again. This is after what you would call a miracle of judgment with Ananias and Sapphira who fell down dead because of their sin of lying. Great fear came over everyone who heard it. It says that a couple times in the chapter, verse 11, great fear came over over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. And here's the summary statement, verse 12. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. And you can see as you read through the rest of that section, that God is doing more things, more than just what we're seeing in Acts chapter 2, more than what takes place in Acts chapters 3 and 4. And so this is a time when God's supernatural power is working through his apostles, and as they perform these miracles, or as they later on in the book cast out demons, as there are miracles of judgment, which include Ananias and Sapphira, or later blindness for a man who was opposing the preaching of the gospel uh, through the Apostle Paul. There are those that are dead that are being raised to life. And all of this is contributing to opportunities for the apostles to preach the gospel. It's also authenticating their office. It's showing that God is with them as they speak, as they preach. God is with these who are preaching the gospel. It gives them, as Jesus had told them, an opportunity to be witnesses in Jerusalem, eventually Judea, and also Samaria, and then to the uttermost part of the earth. So as we look at Acts chapter 3, I want to look at this first part of the chapter, which is the record of this miracle, this sign. We'll begin with the providential circumstances leading to the witness of the apostles, the miraculous sign that drew attention to them as witnesses, 
And then thirdly, the bold testimony, the apostles as witnesses to Christ. And their bold testimony certainly continues through the rest of the chapter. In fact, you could say it continues through the rest of the book. This is right along the theme that we saw in Acts chapter 1, where Jesus said, you will receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be witnesses to me. This is God's working by the Holy Spirit, not only with the power to heal, but then also the power to give them uh, this testimony before the crowd. So let's look at the providential circumstances. Let's look at the details leading up to this witness. And we're confronted with a scene in verse 1 at the temple. We know the portico of Solomon was at the temple. The, The church was meeting there. And Peter and John are going up to the temple, as they had many times in their life. And here they're going at the hour of prayer. It says in verse 1, the ninth hour. That would be if you start at dawn. This is about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It was an hour of prayer. It was also an hour of sacrifice. It was a time when the Israelites would observe that continual burnt offering. They had one in the morning. One in the afternoon, literally between the evenings, I think is what the Old Testament uh, spoke of. So this time in the afternoon where the offering is being offered and that smoke and that aroma is going up before the Lord. This is what the Lord commanded to his people. And it's in the context of that, just what you might say is an ordinary activity on the part of the apostles to go and pray that they encounter a familiar face. I say a familiar face. He's not named here, but based on the circumstances described in verse 2, this is somebody who not only the apostles would have recognized, but the crowd coming to the temple would recognize. Notice how it describes him. It says, a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. So this man, based on the description here, he has never walked. He is lame. He apparently, based on the chapter, can use his arms, but he can't use his legs. That's why he has to be carried. And he was carried. Daily, those who carried him brought him to this gate, and they set him down at what appears to be a gate where many people would have entered, many people would have seen him, many people he would have asked for alms in the past. It says every day. Now, we don't know for how long. Uh, Based on later, as details are Uh, told about this man, this could have been for years and years that this man was carried there to ask alms of those who came into the temple. And if there's a continual burnt offering, and if there's an hour of prayer, this is not something where it's just a few people. Many people would have become familiar with this man because as they entered through this gate, and there were other gates, but this is a very beautiful gate. It's called beautiful they would have recognized this man. The question as to what gate this was in the temple, it's not clear from history. There's not much more detail here other than it's called the beautiful gate. 
One suggestion is, is that uh, Josephus, Jewish uh, historian, spoke of different gates, but he mentioned this particular one as having Corinthian brass uh, covering the gate. It had two doors, and it was very tall. And so to enter into any of the gates, they're all beautiful. They're all covered in silver or gold. But this one, because of its design, because of its size, it was called beautiful. It was known certainly to Luke's original readers, at least those who were there at Jerusalem. It's a common place for them to enter. Where's, what gate did you go through? I went through the beautiful gate. Oh, that gate. They would know that. And that's where this man was brought couldn't get there himself. Whoever was a part of his household or his friends, they were trying to probably help him gain financially so that his life could be taken care of. And it was interesting is just look at that subject of alms in scripture. Uh, You can see Jesus teaching on the giving of alms in Matthew chapter six, as he talks about his disciples giving alms secretly. This was a deed of mercy for someone who was in poverty, someone who would ask, and based upon that asking and their circumstances, the children of Israel were even obligated to give, uh, obligated in the sense that they were to have mercy upon this person. If you take just a moment and turn to Deuteronomy 15, I'm going to suggest that this Man, as he's there in the temple, is not he's not just begging to people who he's relying upon just their kindness. He's also relying upon the fact that they were motivated by some obligation set down in God's word where they would give out of that obligation, hopefully due to compassion as well. But Deuteronomy 15 verse 7 says, if there's a poor man with you, one of your brothers in any of your towns in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart, notice this, nor close your hand from your poor brother. The idea of closing your hand is what you have in your hand. You you don't open that to him. Instead, you close it with a tight fist. No, you're not to do that. Verse 8, you shall freely open your hand to him. And shall generously lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he acts, whatever he lacks. Now, obviously, he's talking about the loan there, but certainly they're also to give just as an act of mercy, not to expect anything to return. The disciples of Christ were to give in that way as they gave to the poor. Turn, if you would, back to Acts chapter 3. This is what this man is doing. The word beg, as it's translated, is just ask. So he's there. He's at the gate, beautiful. He's asking alms of who? Is he being discriminate? No, it's anybody who enters into the temple. Everybody who comes through that gate, he's asking. Some of those people probably had given to him. Others may have just passed through but noted who he was. But over time, if someone's constantly at the same place, constantly asking for something, they would become recognizable. That's the scene. 
a common everyday scene at the temple at this particular gate. Many people would have seen him. Verse 3, it's on this day, Peter and John are going to the temple. Peter doesn't have any money. We find out from his own explanation. He's not got anything with him to give to this man. But verse 3, it says, When he saw, when this lame man saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. And the word began there indicates that this is the first of several times. He's repeatedly asking. Not only is he asking others, but he's repeatedly asking as he sees these men about to go into the temple. So now you have two of the apostles of Jesus Christ walking past a man who is lame, and the man's asking for something, something that would, as you think about it, help him, something that would be temporarily a support to his life, something that he could perhaps buy food with, or he could pay for the accommodations or whatever he had, whatever his needs were, that's what he's looking for. And if you think about the scene and even what Peter says in verse 4, it's almost as if he's not really looking at them. He just notices movement. They're about to walk in. And if this gate is rather wide, he could be off to one side. And as he's asking, he is noticing the movement, but he's not necessarily looking at them in the eyes. Because Peter has to say, look at us. But he's asking alms, alms. If he's saying alms or whatever he's saying, he's asking for something repeatedly And Peter looks at him. So does John. John's there with him. John's part of the scene. He's one of the two witnesses in the rest of this chapter and the next chapter who John's there to support Peter, but Peter's the one who does the talking. And Peter looks at him, directly at him, fixes, as the language says, his gaze on him and says, look at us. So, There's a heightening, certainly, of this man's expectation. He's going to get what he's asking for. Not everybody would have given to him. These guys are going to give me something. As Peter says, look at us. Verse 5 tells us that explicitly. It says he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. What's he expecting? He's expecting what he's asked for. He's asked for alms. He's asking for money, but Peter doesn't have any. And he tells him that. You imagine as he's asking for money and Peter says, look at us. And then he says, I don't possess any silver or gold. How disappointed he might have immediately been upon hearing those words. Look at us. I don't have any money. Oh, what's he going to say? What's he going to tell me? Is he mocking me? This man may have experienced that kind of treatment. We're not told. But when Peter says, I do not possess silver and gold, his heart, no doubt, in light of what he's trying to do, is probably sinking a little bit. But Peter has something much better. Peter has something that he can give this man that's not going to help him temporarily. It'll help him permanently. And even this man came to faith eternally. Look at what he says. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And that's an exclamation point. 
Imagine the scene. This man has never walked. He's not there for that purpose. He's there to receive money. And now this man walking into the temple says, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. Now that would provide a challenge if at first he thought Peter was mocking, but then comes to understand that he is serious. Imagine the the mindset of this man who's looking at someone who is telling him in the name of Jesus to get up and stand to walk. He's never walked. He's never took a step in his life. He's never even stood. He certainly hasn't leaped. And so for what Peter is commanding here, what has to take place on the part of this man is some level of trust to then take Peter's hand and follow his instruction. Jesus Christ, the Nazarene. Jesus was no secret. Jesus, the Messiah, that's what Christ means. Peter is actually preaching Jesus as the Messiah as he gives this man a command. In the name of Jesus, who is from Nazareth, but it's Jesus who is the Messiah, walk. The Messiah was the anointed one. The anointed one had healed many, many people. We don't know what this man knew, but we do know how he responded as, look at verse 7, it says, in seizing him by the right hand, he, this is Peter, raised him up. And here we're starting to see the miraculous sign of healing. We looked at the providential circumstances of the sign, but now this miraculous sign of healing that's going to lead to the witness, the miraculous sign begins with a call to put his trust in the name of Jesus Christ for the purpose of being able to stand and walk. And in verse 7, as Peter reaches out and raises him up, think about Peter. This also is faith. As Peter believes that God has a purpose to raise this man from his lame condition to be able to stand and walk, he utters those words, and you imagine the faith that it would take. Now, Peter had done this before. He had seen things before like this, but this is another instance in which Peter would have to believe that the same Christ who enabled him to do miracles before is now with him in power to enable him to do this one, right? Peter went out with the rest of the disciples. They had done miracles. They had raised the dead. They had cleansed lepers, but this is now Jesus is in heaven. Peter's on earth. Now he's exercising faith, trusting in the words of Christ reaching out his hand, putting Jesus, if I could say it this way, on the line, Jesus' power, Jesus' name, his reputation is at stake here. Will Jesus prove true? He reaches his hand out, starts to pull the man up, and by the power of God, this man's ankles and his feet are strengthened. Notice what it says. Immediately, his feet and his ankles were strengthened. It's the power of this trust in Jesus' name that brought this man the strength to be able not only to stand, but look at verse 8. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. 
And he entered into the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. This is, this is amazing. When you just stop and think about these couple of verses, it's one thing to just read over them. But when you think about it, number one, this man has never walked. And as he gets up, as Peter has given him help to stand up, it's like he's just jumping up and then starting to move around. This isn't like one of those, sometimes you see uh, healings or things that, that are pictured of what Jesus may have done. And you see this person sort of stumbling and realizing they can walk. It's not like that at all. He's immediately able to jump up. He's able to, look at verse 8, the specifics here. He's able to stand upright. He'd never done that in his life. He's able to walk. He began to walk. The idea, the verb there is that it's, a, it's the idea that, he, again, he's, he's able to move and continue to move as we would think of somebody just walking around. It's just that this man has never walked before. He never, as an infant, learned to walk and then became lame. You know what it's like to watch a child learn to walk, right? We, we help them to stand, and sometimes even just the seeing them stand and kind of balance themselves is something in and of itself to, to, to watch that happen. And sometimes they're furniture surfing or whatever, and then eventually they get to the point where they're able to take a step or two steps, and we're, we're just excited for them, but then they plop down, right? They fall over bump into something or something. This man experienced none of that. With a leap, he stands up, he begins to walk, and something else that some suggest may have never happened until this day. He certainly never walked into the temple, right? If he was ever carried into the temple, that's a possibility, but he certainly never walked. But he got to walk into the temple of God. And as he did, and people are around, they're watching him not only walk, but leap and give praise to God. Again, remember the circumstance. This is not being done in a corner. This is in a busy place. It's the hour of prayer. The sacrifice is being offered. It says, verse 9, all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they noticed Not only is this healing obvious to everyone, but they notice who he is. It's not just a person who they see running and leaping and walking about. It's somebody they recognize. They had seen his face before. They may have given him money before. How can he be the one who is running around, who is leaping around, who is praising God? Verse 10 says, they were taking note of him as being the one who sit, uh, used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So what is this miracle producing? Well, for the man, he's rejoicing. He's giving credit where credit is due, that God has healed him. But for the people, you know, these miracles, these supernatural things that God is doing, they're called wonders because of the effect that it produces in people's minds. And look at the effect in verse 10 that it's producing. It says they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is the idea of utter astonishment. It's like what happened when Peter caught so many fish when Christ told him to cast on the other side. 
Luke chapter 5. It's what happened when the people saw Jesus cast out an unclean spirit, and they were utterly astonished. Now, this is this whole crowd being utterly astonished at what had happened to this man. Now, this is the effect of this sign. Again, drawing attention to the work of God, but also the witnesses. And it's as attention is drawn to the witnesses that they have opportunity to either take credit or give credit. And what do they do? Look at verse 11. As we have opportunity to see what follows, the man is clinging, verse 11, to Peter and John. So in addition to them seeing him walk and leap and praise God, he's now clinging to a couple of men. And by that, and certainly by Peter's later explanation, they're understanding that these men had something to do with what happened. Why is he hanging on to these men on this at this moment when this amazing thing has happened to him? And that's course, what the Lord is doing. He's allowing this man to be attached to them in these moments, not only for joy and certainly appreciation, but also to draw the crowd so that the witness can be given, so the gospel can be preached. Look at verse 11. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them. So this is, this is causing quite a stir at the so-called portico of Solomon. And then again, it says full of amazement, just utterly astounded as what has taken place. Now, thirdly here, following the, the circumstances and then this complete obvious healing, very public healing, now there's the explanation. Now there's the bold testimony of Peter and John as they give witness to Christ. And the first thing that Peter does as the crowd is just looking on, full of amazement, is he deflects glory from himself. He turns attention away from anything that he himself or John had done. Look at what, is, what he says there in verse 12. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? He denies that he has the power to do this in and of himself, that it's something about his godliness or John's godliness. I'm taking that as the meaning of that word piety there, that that had anything to do. They're not interested in becoming celebrities here. They want to be witnesses. And this is really a great example of what someone who has truly done a miracle in the power of Jesus' name ought to do. They don't bring attention to themselves. They deflect and they give honor and glory to God, who is the source of that miracle. So he deflects any glory away from himself, and he points directly. He gives glory to God in verse 13. It says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. So whatever has happened here, God has done it. But as God has done it, he's drawn attention to a person. And that person is, of course, Jesus. See how he's described here, his servant, Jesus? You might have in the margin 
a note there, if you have the New American Standard, his son, Jesus. This is a Greek word that can refer to a son. It could refer to a boy or a boy slave. Uh, it's certainly the, the idea of servant is accurate, but if we're thinking in terms of what the Bible had already revealed about who Jesus is, there's a really a better explanation than simply that Jesus is someone who serves the Father, or even that Jesus is son to the Father. Because Peter uses this term again, and some of the language that he uses in his sermon suggests that he has a background, a prophetic background, to why he's referring to Jesus in this way. Notice at the end of the chapter, as he concludes or at least has to conclude a portion of his sermon. It says, for you first, God raised up his servant, Jesus, and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. So Peter is explaining Jesus as the pice, the servant of God, the servant of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the servant of the God of their fathers with overtones of his sonship. So who is this? Well, it's interesting to note that in Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49 and Isaiah 52, that this same word is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, but it's applied to the servant of the Lord, the suffering servant of the Lord. Turn, if you would, Isaiah 42. We'll just read the verses that reference this term. There are, in Isaiah's prophecy, servant songs. And those servant songs draw attention to a servant who is going to bring justice, who's going to bring salvation. Isaiah 42, verse 1, notice it says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And we could read through the rest of that servant song, but even just reading in verse 1, we notice that this is someone who God delights in. And he has declared publicly his delight in his son, as he says, when Christ is baptized, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is his servant, his chosen one, the one he delights in, the one he places his spirit upon. And so this is the anointed one. Anointing was a symbol of the Spirit in the Old Testament, when a king was anointed for service, the Spirit of God would come upon that king in Israel's life, and that, that person would be empowered for their service. Well, this is the anointed one upon whom the Spirit rests. So when Peter is calling him, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant, Jesus, it's this that's at the background. Take a look over at Isaiah chapter 49.
And again, we could learn more if we study through the entire servant song, but I'll start in verse five. It says, now says Lord who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. And you could go on even in verse 7 and see more that refers to the servant of the Lord. Take a look at chapter 52. This is one of those chapter divisions that I think is challenging because in chapter 52, verse 13, you can see the beginning of Isaiah's servant song that really goes into the next chapter. Look at verse 50, uh, 13 of chapter 52. He says, behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him for what had not been told them they will see and what they had not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of the parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Yes, he's still talking about the servant as he says, surely our griefs he himself bore. And our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. This is a servant song. Peter is using a term that would have been the translation, was the translation of that term servant in Isaiah 42, 49, 52, leading into chapter 53. Jesus is the servant of the Lord, the suffering servant who was going to be despised and rejected. Now turn, if you would, back to Acts chapter 3. In the context of his mentioning Jesus as the servant, notice the very next thing he starts to talk about. He talks about how they treated him, what they did to Jesus. Verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him delivered by the ones among the Jews who'd come to arrest him, delivered to the Roman authorities because they could not put him to death. And even when Pilate went through the process of questioning him and had decided to release him, he said, who should I release to you? And he asked Barabbas or Jesus? 
Of course, the Jewish leaders are stirring up the crowds and they encouraged them. They drew them to ask for Barabbas. And when it came to Jesus, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. So what Peter is saying in the context here is that they are doing what the prophet said, but they are guilty of having disowned, of having delivered the Messiah over to the authorities in really what amounted to a formal rejection of his ministry. Notice, as Peter goes on to explain who this person is, not only is he servant, verse 13, but he's going to further explain, not only did they disown and deliver the servant, but he says, verse 14, you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. What Peter is doing here, he's convicting this crowd of having sinned against Jesus by actually delivering him over and exchanging this man who was innocent for someone who was certainly guilty. And there was really no question about that. Barabbas had been charged. He certainly would have faced death had Jesus not been in the picture. But when the people had the choice to make, what did they do? They did what Peter did. Peter, in his own way, prior to that cross, Jesus told him that he would deny him three times. This is something Peter had done. He denied him. He reputed, He rejected him, at least in terms of his knowledge of him, his relationship to him. But here is the nation, as they're acting formally, when it came to the administration of justice, what did they want? What did they choose? Rather than choosing the Holy One, the one who is set apart for God, set apart from sin, they instead of choosing the righteous one, the one who had never sinned, who had always pleased the Father and always obeyed, instead of choosing that one, they chose a murderer. They repudiated Christ, they rejected Christ, and they chose a murderer instead. See, Peter, in the context of this miracle, the context of this explanation, he's really not pulling any punches as far as what the people had done and how they had sinned against Christ, how they'd sinned against God's Messiah. Of course, he did that in his first sermon as well. But as he charges them with sin, he goes further. Notice in verse 15, this sort of paradoxical statement, just seeming to be paradoxical because he says, but put to death the prince of life. You might have in the margin... Another word for prince there is author. The Greek word archagos means originator or founder. He is the author of salvation, according to Hebrews. He's the author and perfecter of our faith, but here he's the author of life. He's certainly the creator, but he's the one who gives life. And they put to death the author of life. How could this be? And how guilty are they? And we could say by extension, how guilty are we? Because as mankind dealt with God's Son, we all are responsible for the death of Christ. 
And that's not the end of the story in any of the apostolic sermons. They did preach the sinfulness of the people, the guilt of the people. They did preach the death of Christ, his substitutionary death, but they also preached the glorious resurrection of Christ. And that's where Peter goes next. He says, you asked for a murder to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead. There's the assertion again. We saw it back in Acts chapter 2. Why did Pentecost even happen? Because Christ is risen. That was Peter's statement. The Old Testament prophesied to it, but the very presence of the Spirit on Pentecost is evidence that Christ is risen here Peter proclaims again that Christ had risen from the dead, and he says a fact to which, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let a matter be established. John is there. John, along with Peter, is a witness of the risen Christ. In a court of law, that could stand up as their testimony was accepted on the basis of two or three witnesses. So when it says a fact to which we, he's now referring to John along with him, we are witnesses. And there could have been others in the crowd that were also witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. So what is Peter doing here? Well, he's taken occasion through this healing, which certainly was a supernatural act of God, to bring this man to a full and complete healing. And yes, God must have loved this man. To, to bring him to be able to walk on this day. And this man must have exercised faith because he took Peter's hand, stood up, and now he's praising God. So there are benefits for this man, but taking occasion of this circumstance, there's now the preaching of the message of the gospel to a whole crowd of people who needed Christ, who needed the life-giving power of Christ, who needed to understand that Jesus even was the Christ. There are many in this crowd that were not like the people at Pentecost who believed. They've not yet believed. And here's a witness, another very public witness, along with a sign, another evidence that this is really God who has brought this man to full healing. And how did this happen? It happened in Jesus' name. And that's where we're coming at the end of this section of Peter's sermon. I want to just encourage you to look at this verse carefully. Verse 16 reads a little funny. Uh, in in uh, reading commentaries, even some of the commentaries spoke about how this verse reads a little funny. It's not that it's not true. It's just what is Peter trying to say? Because he's talking about faith and he's talking about the name of Jesus. Now, Peter has already drawn attention to the name of Jesus, as he says in verse 6, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene walk. He's drawn attention to the name of Jesus by, by preaching the gospel, by drawing attention that Jesus' name is connected with this theology in the Old Testament of a suffering servant He's also the Holy One and the Righteous One, and we didn't even explore those two terms in the Old Testament, but they have Old Testament background as well. You know who the God of Isaiah is? The Holy One of Israel. This is the Holy and Righteous One. 
So who is the God of Isaiah? Same person. So the name of Jesus is being attached to in Peter's preaching, and certainly this is, this is just truth, with the Holy One, the Righteous One, the Servant of the Lord, but then it's, it's Jesus' name that becomes the focal point here. It's the name of Jesus through which this man has been able to walk. And based on the verse, look at what he says about the name. It says in verse 16, and on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And I'll stop there for a moment. Uh, If you were to look at this verse in the original language in Greek, the word Jesus is not here. But it most certainly refers to his name. And you might see that in the margin. And if you could read it that way, it's on the basis of faith in his name. It is his name which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. So Peter's not, he's, he's not, not saying Jesus. He's already said Jesus, but what he's trying to emphasize here is, is it's this name. It's his name. It's his name that has brought this man to complete and full healing. The translation says, strengthen him. And then later in the verse, it says, perfect health. Yes, his feet and ankle bones are strengthened. He's able to walk now. He's able to stand upright. He's able to leap. He's able to walk around the temple. He has been given something that will benefit him for the rest of his life. And as you think about his relationship with the Lord now, yes, eternally so. So what is the power that has brought about this miracle? It's the name of Jesus. And when you say the name of Jesus, you're really talking about Jesus himself. Certainly an implication in light of his resurrection, Jesus is not in the grave anymore. Jesus is very much alive. This miracle has been done in his name, certainly with his authorization and with his power behind it. In other words, Jesus is up in heaven, yes, but his name is being used on earth. And when someone uses his name or prays in his name, it's not just a, someone said, it's, it's not just a magical formula or an absolute power that operates apart from the person it represents. In other words, you can't just take Jesus' name and do something with it if Jesus isn't approving. Not miraculous like this. Remember those men later in the book of Acts who tried to cast out demons. They came to the demon and they said, I adjure you through Jesus whom Paul preaches. That's kind of a distant connection to Jesus, right? Paul preaches about him. This is Jesus whom Paul preaches, but I'm adjuring you. And the demon says, I know Jesus and I've heard of Paul, but who are you? And the demon attacks the one who's trying to cast out, the the ones who are casting out the demons and The result was a bloody mess. You can't just invoke Jesus' name and expect something to happen if Jesus himself isn't authorizing it, if he isn't working. And if that name doesn't have any power, nothing's going to happen. But something amazing did happen. 
And why did it happen? It happened because of the power in that name. And could I say this by way of application that what Jesus was able to do in this man's life, the power of Jesus was was to enable him to do something he had never done in his life. In his entire life. So let that sink in for a moment. Jesus' power enabled this man to do something he had never done in his entire life. And to us, it's just simply walking. Right? I mean, this is something we've been able to do since the day we learned. Maybe you've had struggle different times, injury, or something about your body, or whatever the case, but this is not something that for us is all that unusual of a thing. But I say let that sink in for a moment, because when Christ changes a life, when the power of Christ changes a life, he enables that person to do things that maybe they've never done before. You understand what I'm saying? Christ changes things. Now, physically for this man, but certainly spiritually. If you name the name of Christ, if you have put your trust in Christ and he truly is your savior, then there will be change. There'll be difference from what you used to be. There will be power that you didn't have before. And I'm not talking about supernatural power like miracles. I'm just talking about the power to live the life that God has called you to. Unbelievers can't do that. But when you put your trust in Christ and he puts his spirit inside of you, there is a change. There is a difference. Christ changes people. And could I ask you today, has he changed you? You claim his name. Is there a difference in your life? I, I, I still go back to something my, one of my teachers used to say in seminary. He's, he would say, grace never left a man where it found him. If Christ's grace has come into your life, there will be change. There may be stubbornness. For a time, because we are sinners, there may be failure and faltering. But when God's spirit lives inside of a person, what is produced? Love, joy, peace, all of the fruit of the spirit. I'm not saying that we suddenly become perfect. We certainly don't. But there is a change that takes place. And it's through Jesus and his power of saving sinners. Peter is drawing attention to the power of Jesus' name. Notice again, it's verse 16. On the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. Okay, so he's talking about the power of his name. But he mentions faith. And he's going to mention it again. And I I draw us back to when Peter said those words in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene walk, that would have taken faith for him to say, to have the confidence that Jesus was going to do that. 
it would also have taken faith for this man upon hearing those words to then grasp Peter's hand and stand up for the first time. I mean, you're talking about, in one sense, it's new life. I'm not, I'm not saying that because we're not told exactly what's going through this man's mind, but there's some kind of faith that he's exercising here. And the fact that he's praising God afterward means that in Jesus' name, he's been healed and he's praising God who has done this. And why is he doing it? Because he has faith. He's trusting in the name. Now, Peter has been preaching already on Pentecost that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But it's the name of Jesus who has healed this man. So who is Jesus? Jesus is most certainly the Lord. When someone calls upon him or when he acts in a saving way, he brings glory and honor to his name. Yes, it's Jesus' name that is to be accorded, that is to be given the same weight as God because he is God in the flesh. He has the power of God. He has done this miracle. And so Peter draws attention to that rest that receiving, I'm using synonyms for this word faith, that relying upon, it says the faith which comes through him. So he's the source of it, and he's also the object of it. When a person places their faith in him, he's able to do things like what he did for this man. He gave him perfect health. That's the way it's translated at the end there, verse 16 It says the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health or literally perfect wholeness. The idea is that he's now completely healthy. Why? Because of faith in his name, because of trust in his name, because of the power that he has. Now, if I could say it this way, this man has been a recipient of, hasn't he? New life. I mean, his life is going to be completely different. No longer is he going to be begging at the door of the temple, the gate of the temple. He can go home now and he can work. He can even provide for others. God has given him strength that he never had, ability that he never had. And what a wonderful thing for the rest of his life to be able to go back to that moment when he put his faith in in Jesus' name and know that that it was really through Jesus that he has this capability to be able to do all that he did. But there's something more than that for this man and for any person that puts their faith in Christ. And that is spiritual life. That is peace with God. That is true and eternal life when someone turns from their sin and trusts in Christ. There's life, new life. If you are ever going to have life, you must have faith, genuine faith. That faith is coupled with repentance. And as you read the rest of Peter's sermon in this chapter, he's going to draw attention to the need of the people to repent. But you need to, first of all, believe. 
And I would ask you today, have you trusted in Jesus' name? And are you trusting in Jesus' name? Have you turned from any reliance on yourself and anything that you could do in order to gain favor with God? And you're trusting alone in what Jesus has done, both dying on the cross, rising again, ascending into heaven. Have you put your trust in him? And I could say this, that if you have trusted in him, you have life. In fact, you have eternal life. And you're not waiting for that. You have it now. And you're safe for eternity. You do not need to fear death. You do not need to fear unending, everlasting punishment because you have life in Christ. And that's what he came to give. That's what he came, of course, to die so that people would have eternal life through faith in his name. You might be here today, and that's never been something that you have done in your life. And you're like this man. You're unable to save yourself. You're unable to do anything for yourself. And you really need the power of Jesus to save you. And I Guarantee you, if you call upon his name, the scripture says that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You will have the forgiveness of your sins. You'll have new life. You'll have eternal life. You know what? That could be, that could be today. That could be today for you. You don't have to wait. You don't have to wait till somebody comes your way. You can call on the name of the Lord where you are. You could call on his name as you leave this place and cry out to God and ask him to save you from your sins. He will do that. You'll be safe forever. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you that you're Love was extended to this world to send Jesus into this world to give life. Thank you that he did not come into this world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. We thank you, Lord, that you've made plain the good news that a person can be saved if they put their trust in him. You've not told us in your word that there's universal salvation. You have said that there's salvation in no one else other than Jesus. And it is through faith in his name. And so we pray, Lord, that you would accomplish your saving work by the power of your spirit and by his working. We pray that you'd convince sinners of the fact of sin, the guilt of sin, of righteousness that only comes through Christ and a final judgment that they might turn from that and put their trust in you. We pray that your spirit would be at work among us. And if there's a soul today in this place who does not know you, who does not trust in Jesus' name, Lord, would you, through the preaching of the gospel today, 
bring them to ponder, to reflect, and ultimately, Lord, we ask that you'd help them to just give in through faith, put their trust in you. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.